You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we are in England. Last week I travelled to London and when I was there I met Anne Dunn, Head of Product Development at the world's most famous department store, Harrods. And I also called to see Rosalind Rathhouse at London's most sustainable cookery school, which is in the heart of the city centre. But before we hear from Anne and Rosalind, a quick reminder about how to get in touch with me here at The Best Possible Taste. The email is s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. And I really want you to get in touch with me over the coming weeks with details of your favourite Christmas recipes and your tips for using leftovers and everything else that you think is food and drink related at Christmas time. So as I said last week, I had the pleasure of visiting London to see the amazing new food hall at Harrods. My tour guide was Anne Dunn, who is the head of product development. And after the tour, we sat down to talk about the recent refurbishment and the culinary experiences available in the world's most famous department store. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Um, thanks a million for having me here today at Harrods. You have a brand new food hall, which is just amazing. Will you tell me, just to start off, what is the history and the background of the food hall at Harrods? Well, we've been a pioneer in food retail since 1834. Um, many people don't even know that Harrods actually started out as a tea merchant, so almost 180 years ago. Um, and throughout that time, I suppose food has really remained at the heart of Harrods. And indeed, some people would say that food is the heartbeat of Harrods. From a food hall perspective, I guess there's been no real significant investment since the sort of early 1980s. And we know that um, luxury trends are sort of, you know, increasingly been driven by the demand for destination sort of retail experience. So Harrods has embarked on a three-year project um, named Redefining Luxury 2021, which sees Harrods take an investment of 200 million into the store here at Harrods. And really redesigning the store around the shopping requirements um, of discerning modern luxury customers. And as part of this investment, uh, the food halls um, have very much played a part of that. Uh, And just over 12 months ago, um, our sort of one year anniversary, we reopened one of the first food halls, our roastery and bake hall. I guess the clue is in the name, but the roast, the roastery being that we now roast all of our coffee uh, that we use on site um, within um, a dedicated uh, roastery, um, and it's all roasted by our master um, roaster. And then we also have a live bakery, which produces bread, including sourdough, every single day. And that bread can be personalised, I saw, whenever it I was there. It can indeed, yes. And I suppose one of the things that we've tried to do in every single category is really push the boundaries and make sure that we are delivering both experience but also that personalised experience for our customers. So yes, you can have your initials personalised on it, you can have anything you wish personalised on it. And then also earlier this year, Sharon, we opened the Wines and Spirits Room um, on the lower ground floor where for the first time customers can actually see, they can smell, they can touch and they can taste products as they purchase. So really creating magic like no other Wines and Spirits retail offer. And then most recently, so just um, four weeks ago, we um, reopened um, what's now called our Fresh Market Hall. 
which I guess is the most energetic and bustling um, of the food um, halls. Uh, customers can find the finest speciality fresh foods from all around the world and I guess to, to really um, suit the entire spectrum of uh, foodies. So from those who want um, sort of loose fresh produce to sort of um, cook from scratch right through to somebody who just wants to take home um, a pre-prepared meal produced actually daily by our Harrod chefs. So it's really interesting when you visit because there are all these different areas dedicated to different food stuff. So whenever it came to the design elements for the, the refurbishment, what were the key elements? First and foremost, it was about reinstating the beauty of the original food halls um, and having you know, taken you around the food halls, you can see that the beautiful tiling um, that you know uh, was once hidden by uh, lots of uh, different fixtures has now been brought back um, to life. Um, our food halls is um, protected by the Engli- by English heritage as well, so it was really important that we worked with them to ensure that we reinstated that that the original um, beauty um, and and kept it sort of um, protected. So that that's really the first um, first thing. Second thing is about sort of experience and that real personalisation. Um, it really had to stimulate all the senses um, of customers, um, so that you know they went away feeling like it was truly memorable. Um, we know that we have visitors from all around the world. They seek out that mag- magical retail experience. So really retaining that in the design of the room was really important. The other thing was just making sure that we're providing ultimate convenience, and ultimate convenience is making sure that the journey through the rooms is seamless. So really simple things like we, you know, we installed um, self-scan, which you may think might jar with a luxury retailer, but in actual fact, it's really important to our customers in a high-traffic environment and a high-volume you know, volume environment that they can come in and um, get out as quickly as possible. The other thing was really celebrating expertise. Um, so I've touched base on our master baker and our master roaster, but we also have a brigade of 150 chefs under our roof that are producing fresh products every single day. And it was really important that we allowed them to become centre stage of the room. So in a project of this nature, there's obviously a lot of different people involved. So from designers to trades such as carpenters, you lighting to look at, and then of course the suppliers. So how important is collaboration in bringing to life such an impressive environment? I would say that collaboration is everything. This was a, a hugely ambitious project and we're on you know, an amazing journey. Um, but like anything, um, you know, we've got a very short window to deliver this. So collaboration amongst a multitude of different departments um, was a must in order for us to be able to deliver this. Internally, we have an incredible team. Um, they've worked you know, and, and continue to work tirelessly um, on delivering world-class um, standards. There have been times where it's been challenging, and you've touched on some of the departments like lighting, for instance. Um, it was really important that we worked with the lighting team to ensure that the beauty of the products was retained and that it didn't sort of give across any sort of artificial um, sense, but that just simply enhanced the beauty of them. Equally, we had to work with visual merchandising to ensure that the beautiful products that you know we had developed as part of the innovation team were merchandised in a way that made it easy for the customers to shop, as opposed to merchandised in a beautiful way that people will just look at but will be scared to to buy. We um, worked, you know, we've got a, an amazing brigade of chefs, as I've said. 
Um, but some of the chefs had never worked in retail before and are used to very much single plating uh, a dish. Um, but in a retail environment, to retain that freshness, um, but also in a scalable fashion, it does take quite a lot of working uh, through together to deliver that same consistency and quality. We had to work really closely with the buying team in terms of sourcing the best ingredients from all around the world and indeed you know, trying to find the best suppliers that uh, you know, at times, certainly in the past, we wouldn't have necessarily ha- had. Um, so that, that was you know, complete and utter collaboration. There's also, um, on the immediate front now, trading it daily, uh, the retail team. So ensuring that they have been um, given the right tools to you know, sell um, all of these amazing products to our customers, um, but being trained properly so that they can um, passionately tell the customers the stories about where the products come from, how they've been made, what they taste like. So endless amounts of training has gone into that. So yeah, collaboration was key and there's been um, many, many departments involved in this project. You talk a lot about your customers and your customers' needs, so it's clear that the food offering is here at Harrods is very, very important. And I think outside of London, a lot of people think Harrods is it's a tourist attraction, mm-hmm. but it's actually very much a consumer-driven dri- operation as well. Like, you have a lot of regular people that come in to do their food shop. Absolutely, absolutely. No, you're, you're, you're right there, Sharon. Um, the food scene today in London and indeed around the globe is, is very dynamic and it's, you know, constantly changing, which is one of the really exciting things about working in food. Um, and I suppose ultimately the food halls, we want to offer inspiring solutions to make customers' lives easier alongside the sort of finest and rarest and most unique speciality foods from around the world, carefully created by, you know, us, the experts. And whether you're sort of, you know, um, catering for a special event that you have coming up or you're just simply coming in to buy, you know, a Monday evening dinner, um, you know, our, our offering provides all of those. Or you're simply just coming, as you mentioned, you know, to Harrods for that one magical time um, when you're in London um, you know and you would just want to pick up something nice to sort of remember that experience by whether it be the personalised loaf of bread or be it a beautiful tin um, of tea you know that's been made by our tea tailor um, we've sort of got the spectrum of products to suit everybody's needs It is amazing when you walk around and you see all the different products from all parts of the world and you told me as well about your, your colleagues that are experts in that field. So yeah, Bernadette is our um, cheese and our charcuterie expert. Um, she is um, probably the most educated in both of those categories um, that you know I've ever met. She's phenomenal at what she does, um, but she is lucky, lucky enough to work with some incredible partners. Um, and by building up relationships with them, she um, now gets to, to select the legs of ham uh, I think she's the only buyer in the world that gets to do this um, in retail and she gets uh, a preview of the legs which are then numbered for us in Harrods 
from a cheese perspective, she um, judges on the World Cheese Awards and she also visits quite a lot of our cheese suppliers um, where, again, she will pre-select the wheels. Um, for instance, our Comte, um, they released about 30 wheels earlier this year and she got to secure four of them at a 36-month age. So um, quite a rare um, uh, ageing for, for cheese uh, and we're lucky enough to be able to sell it in the food halls. And you also were telling me about the truffle, that they can inject different truffle flavours in yes. the cheese. So there's lots of personalised products available. There is. So again, in every category, we've tried to really shift, I suppose, what maybe tradition or how you do things and really um, think about how we can um, build on the experience for the customer and truly personalise it, as you said, Sharon. Um, So um, truffle is obviously very much in season at the moment um, and truffle cheeses and uh, truffle and cheese go really well together. And it's something that we've seen very much grow over the last couple of years. Um, But what we've done is um, our chefs have um, developed a truffle paste, which we then can um, slice a wheel of cheese and insert that um, truffle paste and then allow it to mature. Um, Customers can let us know the intensity of the truffle that they wish for. So if they want a mild truffle, then we'll create a mild truffle paste. If they want a very intense truffle, then it'll be a very intense truffle paste. And we do it across an array of different cheeses. Um, So again, really, truly personalising it um, for our customers. And it sounds like you very much are ahead of the food trends, like you know what's coming up. And for example, some of the meats that you have, you were the first to have the Wagyu and the Kobe cuts of beef there. Yes, that's right. I mean, to to some extent, food trends are not overtly important for us. But at the same time, I guess we are always seeking out what's new and what's different. Um, The approach we take on trends, though, is really thinking about what's relevant to our customers at this moment in time. And because we've got a very dynamic and a very global customer base, then it is our, our jobs um, to seek out those speciality products. So as customers' ways of eating are changing, then it's our job to make sure that we're fulfilling those needs. Yes, we were the first retailer to um, sell um, Kobe, um, as you said, but we're also approaching food in terms of seasonality, but not seasonality in terms of spring, summer, autumn, winter, but seasonality in terms of what's early season, what's absolute peak season and what's late season. So right throughout our fruit and vegetables, that's the approach that we've taken. So you'll see we're very much about squashes and root vegetables at the moment. Come January, it'll all be about oranges and into the summer then we'll have the biggest array of tomatoes. That's very interesting that you say that because my next question was going to be about the different individuals involved in in the food offering. So we've talked about Bernadette and then you have a, a team of 150 chefs that are either behind the scenes or in front of the scenes. And you're talking about the squash there and pumpkin was something else that you touched on whenever we were in the food hall. And you have a pasta section there. Yeah. with experts making fabulous pasta and they made was it a squash ravioli or a pumpkin, pumpkin ravioli. ravioli that's right yeah so again i mean right throughout the food halls um that that level of expertise is really important to us and then how we translate that to customers is really important so pumpkin um ravioli is bang on season and it's the sort of the, the feature within the pasta offering at the moment but that will, you know, quickly change to some, um, you know, fresh cheeses um, come January, February, and right through to, you know, the most amazing tomato 
um, ragouts, um, when tomatoes are in season, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, carrying through the seasonality is really important. It's lovely to hear the passion that you have for the food industry and for, you know, I suppose meeting customer needs and people will be saying there's Anne Dunn and she works in Harrods and that's not an English accent you're from Calvin <laughs> I am indeed so I'm very proud of it tell me about your journey from Calvin to Harrods in London sure um, so yeah I was born in Calvin um, in a little village called Mount Nugent um, which uh, is probably most well known for um, some great um, salmon and trout from our local um uh, Lake Loch Sheelan. I was uh, born and schooled there and then headed off to university um, but I guess my my true passion has always been food ever since I was young so I was born on a farm I grew up on um, you know freshly um, milked cows every day I was lucky enough to eat the best beef um, because my father was a beef farmer and um, indeed the best pork but I headed off to university in, in Dublin and I did um, a degree in arts there. But knowing that it wasn't quite right for me, I sought out a master's in food business in Cork. And that's when I really knew that I wanted to do something in food and something in business. So this felt like the perfect um, course for me. Then I was very lucky to um, work with a company called um, Freshways uh, Foods, who were owned by Kerry Foods, um, and at the time were uh, building a state-of-the-art um, sandwich and sort of food-to-go um, facility. And I headed up the um, MPD um, there with a very small team, uh, was sort of thrown in the deep end, but got to learn quite a lot uh, very quickly. And then I realised that actually the pace of work was probably quicker in retail than it was in manufacturing and I wanted to see what it felt like to be in retail. So I I jumped from one ship to the other and um, worked in Superquin um, for a number of years looking after the development, um, mainly of fresh categories actually, and got to develop some incredible um, foods in my time there. I also spent a bit of time while I was there in buying and in category um, management. So I sort of spread my wings into other departments, knowing that innovation was still, you know, my true passion. But I knew I needed to do that um, to get to, to have a much better understanding of um, all elements um, of retail. And then I uh, got a phone call uh, one day from um, Harrods, wondering would I be interested in coming to uh, work as the head of product development and um, at the time Bruce Langlands um, was the director of foods so I spent some time with him understanding the scope of the role and it was probably after marriage and birth one of the most exciting uh, days for me because I seen the opportunity I seen what it was like to be in Harrods at that time but also how the whole world of food was changing and how Harrods really wanted to be the pioneer off it so um yes yeah, so i joined harrods just over seven years ago and um have been on a, a, a sort of revolutionary journey ever since um having redesigned two of the food the four food halls now i can say that i've truly um enjoyed the time and i've done an immense amount in that time but i guess there's there's still more to do and you are a great advocate for artisan food producers Absolutely. and working with them even if they've a great product but the packaging isn't right that's something that you have worked with a number of small companies on we have and i mean that's i think that's probably one of my fundamental um, values is that the product has to taste truly amazing and if it does then we've got to 
give it the right packaging so that the customer knows that before they they um, actually buy it. We've got lots of examples of small artisan producers that we've worked with over the years, and particularly in the fresh market hall, um, where you know we've we've launched seventeen hundred new products. We've sought out the the best, but also we're very conscious of hand holding them as well. So we um, we've worked with a very small farm who produce all our milk, our cream and our butter, have never been in retail uh, before, understood the sort of requirements that you know we had around sort of packaging and design that we needed, but also the technical um, standards. And we spent a number of months um, working with them. But we know at the end of the day we've got the most incredible products at, at the end of it, which was always what we wanted. We've got a very small um, egg farm called Cacklebean um, Farm, where all of our eggs come from. They specialise in sort of rare breed hens. So when we tasted the eggs, um, immediately we knew that they were by far the best eggs that we've ever tasted. Um, you know, all of our chefs were incredibly wowed by how beautiful the, the products tasted. And then it was simply about us working with them to get them into beautiful packaging that really represented the brand um, quite well. And in terms then of moving forward, is Harrods vision for the future for the food hall? Is it continuing to work with existing suppliers, constantly looking for new ones and just always improving the customer experience? Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, we we need to continue to evolve as our customers do. Our ambition is to be the world's greatest food emporium, so we can't sit still with that, that ambition. So, you know, even though we've launched 1,700 new lines, for instance, recently, we're still, we're, we're already learning from that just four weeks in. Um, we know we've got some indicators of what's working. We know we haven't got everything right. Um, we're, we're constantly on the lookout. We we travel the world, um, the, you know, to the buying team, the chef team, the innovation team. We um, we visit trade shows. We um, are, you know, form part of judging panels um, for some of the best awards around the world, the World Cheese Awards, the Great Taste Awards, indeed the Blasma Heron Awards. Um, and, you know, we're, we're constantly on the lookout for, for new products, but always bearing in mind that, you know, we've got to think about what the customer um, wants and the customer is ultimately at the heart of everything we do. Well, I've no doubt there's a number of small producers out there listening that would just love to see their, their, their products in Harrods, but obviously it's, a long, it's the long haul. It doesn't happen overnight, as you've told me in the past. It's been great to be here, to see it all in real life and to see a number of Irish products on the shelves here. It makes me feel very proud. Oh, thank you, Sharon. Indeed, I am too. And thanks so much for having me today. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I was talking to Anne Dunn, Head of Product Development at Harrods in London, about the amazing food hall that has just undergone a major refurbishment and is a must-visit for any food and drink lover who finds themselves in London. If you're just tuning in now and you missed that interview, you can catch it on the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website. 
Now, another amazing individual that I met during my visit to London set up a cookery school by accident when she found herself in a position where a young man needed to learn how to cook. Rosalind Rathhouse has over 50 years of teaching experience and her passion is not only for food and cooking, but also for sustainability. Everyone who passes through the doors of the cookery school leaves a bit more sustainable than when they arrive. Let's have a listen to her story. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rosalind, it's fantastic to be here in your cookery school in the centre of London, a very unique space with a very unique story. Tell me how it all began. Well, I was a study skills tutor, uh, teaching about 40 children a week, and I had a boy who um, was at the end of his school life, and he needed... Um, to take a year off because he needed to do some retakes before university and he didn't know how to fill his year once he'd done the retake so he went off, he did a computer course learned to type fast a typing course rather and then he didn't know what to do and there was nothing that appealed to him and when I suggested cooking he said, great idea but there were no schools around at all that could take him I think there were three schools in London at that time and none of them could fit another boy on. So I said to him, you know, Jacob, if I was free, not teaching, I'd teach you how to teach. Anyway, that night I repeated that story to my family. They said, this is your time. You are free to do it. So I told all the parents, all the children I was teaching, that as soon as they no longer needed me, I would no longer teach them, but I would keep them while they did. And it took a couple of years to get rid of everyone. Uh, and I used to, when I did finally start teaching, I used to teach um, in the evenings and weekends and other people used to teach at cookery school during the week and that way we were able to offer a few decent classes. But um, we found the premises because my husband, um, they said it was a storeroom, his landlord, and I came to have a look at it. It was a dark, horrible place and I said, oh gosh, I can't... We couldn't do anything there. And he said, of course we could. And this is the space that he converted. And you've been here for how many years? Fifteen. And then after five years, the, uh, the recording studio downstairs became available. And we converted that into the huge kitchen that you saw. We can do up to 50 people in there. Not teaching as corporate events. One-on-one teaching, we tried to limit it to 16 or one-on-one not one-on-one, class teaching. Um, We would do 16 in there with two teachers and two helpers. We keep our teaching, teacher-pupil ratio very high because I think it's really important to get close teaching. It's not hugely profitable doing that, but we're not all about profit. We're about teaching people how to cook, feeling enabled, and being enthused about cooking. So um, we use great ingredients, mainly organic. Uh, we've all, we have agreements with all our suppliers to provide us with local food, first of all. Sometimes we can't get local food because it's not produced in England, so we'll get that as close um, to England or the UK as we possibly can. But um, I think that um, when people come in, even if they're not eating, um, sort of this good sort of in, using the good ingredients that we use, I think just coming in and experiencing 
what beautiful ingredients do and that beautiful ingredients give you beautiful food when cooked correctly is an experience in itself. We often have an argument back in Ireland about what is local, like how far is local? Is it a 12-mile radius? Is it 100? Because obviously Ireland is an island. It's not a, not a big country. But a lot of the chefs now, it is all about in-season, locally sourced ingredients. And as you say, the quality is there. If you use quality ingredients, then you're going to have quality food to enjoy at the end of it. Absolutely. I mean, at this time of the year... It's an exciting time because they're all the beautiful squashes, they're mushrooms, so apples, pears, quinces, we're using all that sort of stuff now. And we go through the winter using that. In the lean period, we're using whatever we can get. And when spring comes and we get that first rhubarb, then the asparagus, then the huge splurge of all that summer stuff. It's quite wonderful. It gives, it's also fun for us because you get the variety through the year. So we do try and tailor our menus to accommodate all of that. And you can certainly hear the passion in your voice and yeah. see how your face lights up whenever you're talking yeah. about spring must be a very special time yes, of year for yes. you. And sustainability is something that's very important Absolutely. also. And that brings me back to your point of how far do we buy. We buy seasonally. We also try to buy as locally as we can. If you're in the, the Sustainable Restaurants Association definition of local is 50 miles if you're anywhere out of London, but in London, um, 50 miles um, out of London, sorry, that's quite right, and 100 miles if you're in London, because London's so huge that there's not a lot happening within sort of the London area itself, although there are quite a lot of producers now doing all sorts of interesting things. Um, so we get um, our meat straight from uh, farms, two local farms that we use, or two farms from Reeg and Sheep Grove. Um, we get our um, flour straight from Shipton Mill. Uh, Yo Valley does all our organic stuff, all our dairies, um, butter, cream, yogurt comes from them, and uh, eggs come from a farm in Kent. So organic eggs, that's all organic, so that we know that we're getting what we set out to buy. Um, fish drives us crazy. Fish is our biggest problem. Um, in a nutshell, we won't use anything that's not land caught or local and seasonal. And is this something that you convey to your oh, your yes. students whenever they oh, yes. the, So the education isn't just about how to make a specific dish. It is about the sourcing of Absolutely. the ingredients and the other aspects of Absolutely. where ingredients it's come from. Absolutely, it's part of our DNA and we share that. But the problem is with the um, MCS, they actually think farming is okay. We don't. There are lots of problems which I won't, you probably know, won't go into here. But I do understand where they're coming from because we've got a world that's hungry for protein and increasingly so and our seas can't supply it. But fishing isn't farming, fish farming isn't right yet. So we're in the fortunate position of not having to use fish um, that has been farmed and we try to promote using MSC fish that isn't 
farmed at all, from nothing that is farmed. In terms then of the types of classes that you mm. offer, do you do fish classes, yes. vegetarian, like yes. some unusual ones at this oh, time yes. of the year, like the ultimate vegetarian Christmas dinner? Oh, yes. Tell us a bit more about the, the specific classes that you teach. Well, there are two reasons for us doing the vegetarian dinner. The first one is we really are over-proteinized. So I always feel a bit bad that we do pure fish classes and pure meat classes, but people do want to learn how to cook those things. And we prevail on them, firstly, to use organic meat so that the carbon footprint's lower. And the second thing that we do is we say eat less, have a small amount, and also use every scrap of whatever you can. If you can even stretch it, like bolognese and pasties and things so that you're mixing it with veg and you're still getting your meat but it's length and so we teach those sort of things in the meat classes but if you're doing a vegetarian class the when there's a huge demand firstly because a lot of people want to eat vegetarian food and secondly it means that you're not eating that much meat so there are two reasons for us to do it um the vegetarian christmas it's the first time we've done it is real fun we've had to experiment quite a lot so we're doing something called a faux gras, Very which good. in fact it's not ours, it's not original. It's an, a recipe from an American that's based in Paris. Uh, and he uh, writes wonderfully and he has wonderful recipes and the faux gras is his recipe um, and it's gorgeous. And we're going to serve it with a brioche. So it'll be like eating foie gras with a brioche. We'll make our own brioche, of course. We don't buy anything in. Then um, the main course is a vegetable, a winter vegetable wellington, we're calling it. And we've experimented a lot. It's a mixture. It's got leeks, um, leeks, uh, lentils, mushrooms, little wild mushroom in it. Um, and it's all sautéed together, everything's cooked together, and then it's bound together with an egg. So it, you can form it into a loaf in a wonderful homemade buttery puff pastry. So really delicious. And with that, we're serving um, pumpkin with um, cinnamon pistachio nuts. We're doing a creamed spinach. Um, uh, oh, Brussels sprouts course with chestnuts obligatory a cranberry and orange sauce to go with the roast so it's really delicious mm. it's not a compromise it's mm -hmm. food that is delicious in its own right and the desserts there's never any issue with the dessert never then, any with Christmas issue with the dessert they can have the desserts yes and we has. would use um if we're doing christmas mince pies which they will be doing little mince tartlets um, we make our own mince and we just use a vegetable suet for in them so, yeah, they'll have a really lovely meal. And some of the recipes that you're, you're using then in the cookery school, they came from your mother and your grandmother. A lot did. So that must be lovely to see those passed on. It's fabulous. I walked in on Saturday to a class in here, and they'd just been baking cakes. And they were talking about some of the cakes. And I said, my mother used to make that cake for me when I was a child. And I'm 75. And um, I used to make that cake. It was a chocolate cake. It was actually a Betty Crocker. And I said, that was the standby that my children always asked for when they were at school, when they had to take a cake to school on their birthdays. And it's just absolutely foolproof and wonderful. And so there's a lovely feeling of, of doing that. And would that have been in South Africa? Because yes. you were born in South yes, Africa. Yes, I was. 
I left there when I was 21. Um, I was married. I mean, imagine being married at 21 and leaving home and supporting your husband. But I'd met him when I was at school, in the last months of school, and we'd got married partway through my degree, and he supported us while I finished studying. Then we came over for him to do a postgraduate course, and I went into teaching. They were desperate for teachers. You didn't even need teacher training. It was a very good way of learning. It was a baptism by fire. But it was interesting because at that point, I really used to wake up every morning and thinking, oh, do I have to go into that hellhole? You didn't and enjoy I it? I didn't enjoy it at all. It was really, really tough. Very um, poor part of um, London. And um, in those days, there were lots of uh, people coming in from the West Indies to work on London Transport, the post office. And I used to identify with them because we were all so homesick for the sun and fresh food, not soggy cabbage and things like that. And the kids used to say, oh, miss, we wish we could have some rice and peas. And I really identified with that. So I taught in those years. It was either heading a typing pool in Liverpool Street or teaching. And when we sat down with our friends, there were no parents one night, and I said, which job should I take? And they all said, Oh, go for teaching. So on the flip of a coin, virtually, teaching was for the rest of my life. And you did go back to South Africa yes. at one point, and you the children were you taught born. cookery yes, over there. Yes, the children were born here at that point, and we were here for three years while my husband finished his degree. But we'd promised everyone we'd go back because my father-in-law had died just before we left. But it was a horrible days of apartheid. We really didn't want to return, but we were honour-bound to do it. So we went back. And I started teaching my friends how to cook, because none of them could cook. And um, then people said, would I teach their maids? Or they were called servants in those days. And um, there were a lot of people that used to hear about me, and they would just join the class for free, because it suddenly gave them a chance to become, go into some other career. I remember there was a man that joined, he came from Zululand, and he had those huge earrings, you know, sort of things in them, and his sandals. It was very typical of how people dressed then, and, but they were really exploited. He worked um, at a golf course, and he lived in a tiny room, and he cooked his food on something called a primus which is a little stove that you primed, you pushed the paraffin in and lit it. And I said, we usually give people homework. Uh, do you think you'll be able to do some homework? And he said, yes, I'll cook it on my primus. Uh, of course, he couldn't do it, but he did come to classes and he absorbed whatever he could. But other people were paid for. Instead of being called the girl, they became the cook. So it was a promotion. But across the road from her, you weren't allowed in those days to teach black people in your house. Um, you weren't supposed to teach anyone because I think that was a ploy of the then nationalist government to give people as little education as they could because education was the way to freedom, really. But um, I used to bribe him. Everything we cooked went into his house. Every day, duck l'orange and sal veronique, fresh bread, creme caramel, you name it. The lot went across the road. We'd keep a little to eat, and it all went into him. I mean, who would walk away from that? And so no one ever dogged me in. He was well-fed. He was. And we only had one person. She was a white person that wanted to 
learn to cook quickly. So she used to join the class. She was an embarrassment because she was terribly spoilt and it was just the wrong sort of person to have. But she learned to sort of settle down and do whatever everyone else was learning. But it was only demonstration. And um, everyone was so enthusiastic and they used to go home with whatever homework they had to do and come the next week bearing their tins, carrying whatever it was they'd made. And I learned at that stage, I didn't know anything about the chemistry of cooking or the science of cooking. And they'd say, my cake's very bad this week. It's very small. I beat it so much. Well, you realize they were beating the air out of it. And someone else would say, look at my cake. I did it so quickly. It's not going to be very good. And you'd get this wonderful cake because they'd just done the right thing. Of course, now we know why they did it because they'd expelled all the air or let the chemical reaction happen and before it was baked and beaten all the air out of it then. But yeah, I learned a lot from teaching then and it was great. Was it difficult to leave South Africa then to come back to London? Well, no, because I really didn't love being there. I was at home with the children. So I saw things that my husband didn't see during the day. The arrests, people running through the streets when the police were raiding. Things that were really horrible. We couldn't wait to leave. And we came back. Um, Life was very different. It was lovely to be here, and we've been here ever since. I've been here for 54 years. And you have a book? You have a cookbook? We have a cookbook. Tell um, me a bit about your cookbook. Oh, I'll show you a bit. It's not a cookbook that is a tabletop book. It's a manual. We've self-published it because we wanted to do what we wanted to do. It has been properly edited by a proper food editor, and it was designed by a wonderful designer. Kate Ross's office did it. And um, the book, I said to them, you can do whatever you like with it. The only thing that I want is it's two things. It's got to be spirally bound so it can go into the kitchen and lie flat. It's got to be exactly like any manual would be. The recipes can even run on one onto the next. So I don't mind. And I don't want a photograph in sight. The only thing that you can do if you want to, if you want icons, you can put them in. And they've done a brilliant job. It's really simple. And tell me why you didn't want photographs of the dishes in it, because I think that can be very useful for a cook to see how something is meant to turn out. Because I think it then becomes a more coffee table sort of book. And this is just really telling you how you do it. Our recipes do work. Someone I know gave a gift of it to someone in South Africa who's not a good cook, and she's just no photographs. Every time they write to me, they say she's working her way through the book. We had supper with her last week, they said, and we had your fish stew, and it was delicious. And she did a few other things. So it is working for someone that's not being taught by us. Fantastic. We don't promote it madly. Um, We're not very good at promoting ourselves. We do what we do, and we do it with the most integrity we can. It's not about being famous, it's about actually making people come in and feel relaxed and feel enabled. And I think when you use famous names to teach, um, that's overawing because they feel there's an expectation. And also, we're very unchefy. It was one of the first things I learned when I used to do all the teaching, was that people had been to other schools that were very chefy, and they said, we feel daunted. We feel that people are judging us and we're expected to step up to the mark. Here, we go the other way. We actually start the classes by saying, we just want to tell you, 
once we've done health and safety and all the th- other things that we have to do, that if any of us make mistakes, and that includes us, we will be utterly transparent about it. And if you make a mistake, we'll pounce on it, not because you've made a mistake, but we're quite pleased you've made a mistake. Because if someone does make a mistake in the class, we can use that to teach everyone else in the class. Because the chances are they may do something perfectly here and then go home and screw up and not know what to do. But if they've seen an error and they can see how you can correct it, that's brilliant learning. Absolutely, you can learn from the mistakes. We, that's a major part of our teaching. So you're here 15 years, yes. and you mentioned there you're in your 70s. You look yes, fantastic. Yes, yes. For, are you going to keep going? Yes. What's your vision for the future for, well, the, for the cookery school? My vision for the future for cookery school is I am going to have to step out at some point. I've got a wonderful principal, Joe's taken um, over from me. I've got an amazing staff. A lot of them have been, someone's been here for 14 years, others for two people for 12, another for 11, and so it goes. We do have a sort of, uh, at the edges, we have change. In fact, a lot of our chefs have been 10, 11 years. I can mark it all because 11 years ago, 10 years ago actually, I was paralysed in my arm. So I was limited straight away in what I could do. It was a medical accident. And um, so I know which chefs came in at that time. And as I'm talking to you, I realise quite a lot of the chefs, we call them teachers that work for us, have been here for a good 10 years. So we have real continuity and it's a cookery school family. Fantastic. Well, if anybody listening wants mm. to find out more about mm. it, you're online at cookeryschool.co.uk. All yeah. the classes are detailed there. Yes. Your book can be accessed yes. and or we can do, be bought through yes. the website. And one of the things we do, exciting things, we always bring um, innovating. We've just done an advanced baking course because after all the bake-off competitions, everyone wants to learn how to bake. We can't do enough. We do French breakfast baking. We've just done this advanced baking course with things that you don't normally do. My favourite in those are the Jaffa cakes that we do. We've perfected a Jaffa cake with a pâté de fruit in the middle. We do a Genoise at the bottom, a thin layer of pâté de fruit, an orange one, coated in beautiful dark. We use Valrhona chocolate for the coating of that one. But we use a lot of different beautiful chocolates. Uh, we find Valrhona's really... Oh, I'm not allowed to talk about brands. Um, no, that's okay. It's fine. Uh, but we use a very good dark chocolate. Um, and what else? Pretzels. Perfecting pretzels and dipping them in lye, getting them to be absolutely spot on, took a lot of practice. So it's quite fun. And then we've been doing a lot on gut health, because as you know, that's a real science now. And a lot of people are really interested. So the gut health stuff we do, we do with that goes the ferment classes. And very importantly, we've just recently introduced a class on waste, how to use waste. We recycle about 90% of our waste. Um, We have very little things are kept for staff lunches. Everyone eats lunch here every day. But it's showing them how to... Use things like all the leftovers in your fridge. So we do bottom of the fridge soup. We do a beautiful bread and butter pudding, but we do a savoury one, as well as a sweet one, just with all the leftover bits of sausage, meat, 
veg, cheese. You can't believe how good that is. Well, to finish up, I was going mm. to ask you about mm. your, your top tips for mm. the Christmas dinner. And I think probably using up the leftovers is, is a good piece of advice. Like, yeah. how do people use up that leftover turkey and ham, for example? Well, that, would, that bread and butter pudding would be absolutely super. You can use it in sort of frittata type of dishes as fillings and omelettes. Um, you can use it um, to do a mushroom sauce and add to your mushroom sauce. Um, you could have that on toast. You could have it with um, rice. You can do all sorts of things like that. But I was going to say um, we don't use any plastic and we don't use, use any foil. So we use um, stainless steel tins. We use glass dishes with plastic lids. We do that sort of thing to keep things. But when we're doing our turkey, for example, we put the turkey in to bake, we fill a pan with water at the bottom, and we steam our puddings in the same oven as we're doing the turkey. So you're not using heat on the hob to do your puddings separately. Agreed. And and also, the other thing is, all that steam circulating around the oven keeps your turkey beautifully moist. Absolutely. So, yes. Well, we'll have to put that into practice when we're doing the Christmas dinner this year. Thank you so much for having me today. Your cookery school, it's it's just wonderful in the centre of London, so it's so handy if people are over in London for a few days. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's been such a joy talking to you. I love, as you can hear, I love talking about food and teaching and just about spreading the word about how easy it is because if more people knew how to cook we wouldn't have the health problems that we have and you said what did I want to do next that's what I want to do next I want to try and get education real food education into schools and it should just be called cooking well continued success for the future and thanks again for having me today thank you You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Rosalind Rathhouse from the Cookery School in Little Portland Street in the heart of London. Visit cookeryschool.co.uk for more details. And if you want to find the recipe for the faux gras, Rosalind mentioned it is by David Lebovitz, who is no stranger to Ireland, having attended Ballymaloo Lit Fest back in the day. And earlier in the programme, Anne Dunn, Head of Product Development at Harrods, shared details about the recent refurbishment in the food hall at the world's most famous department store. If you'd like to catch up on Best Possible Taste, it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am on West Limerick 102 FM and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Before I go, please get those voice recorders out on your iPhones or your Android phones and record your tips and advice for making the perfect Christmas dinner using up leftovers drinks, recipes, whatever you have and send them to me s.noonan at live.ie Thanks for tuning in and to my guests tonight Andon and Rosalind Rathhouse. Until next week Bon Appetit Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan Sponsored by thetaste.ie Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation 
Bon Appetit. 